Welcome to ID the Future. On this episode, Discovery Institute Senior Fellows David Berlinski and Michael Denton, both longtime critics of neo-Darwinism, discuss their primary objections to neo-Darwinian theory. For Berlinski, a mathematician and author of 123, Absolutely Elementary Mathematics, the problem is quantitative and methodological. For Denton, a scientist and author of Nature's Destiny, How the Laws of Biology Reveal Purpose in the Universe, the problem is empirical. Don't miss this engaging discussion. If I wanted to amaze and dismay my Darwinist friends with a relatively short, cogent challenge to evolutionary belief, what argument or evidence would I offer? In other words, if I wanted to not say something long, but something short and cut right to the heart of Darwinism, what, what would I say? There's a double temptation. One is to offer examples. And, and we've uh, had so much experience with examples. We know they persuade the person who's offering the examples, but they never, they never really succeed in persuading the other side. Why does the elephant have a trunk? Why are there no intermediate-sized trunks among the elephants? Yeah. Why aren't pigs born with wheels mounted on ball bearings? I mean, mm-hmm. those, those sorts of things. Why does evolution take the strange divagations that it does? highly channelized courses of uh, development and evolution. Because it's at the, at the level of rhetoric, the Darwinian establishment is very adept at counter-rhetoric. If you haven't seen elephants with intermediate-sized noses or giraffes with intermediate-sized necks, that's because the fossil record is weak, a lot of time is involved, there's no reason you should have seen this. If I wanted to go beyond the, the level of rhetoric, and of course, of the activity when it comes to the issue of Darwin, whether it's credible or not, is rhetorical exchanges and not really scientific or rational exchanges. If I wanted to go beyond that level, I think I would ask questions that I don't think the Darwinian establishment can answer successfully. And the questions strike to the nature of what we want in a biological theory. They're quite different from the usual kind of questions answers that are being posed. I'll give you an example that I've been using since, uh, well, since the 1990s, and that's the evolution of the whale. Now, the evolution of the whale is a majestic story. It's a majestic story in several respects. One, the whale is a majestic creature. Anyone who's seen a whale must be impressed. If he's not impressed, he shouldn't be part of the discussion. Uh, and the second, it's a majestic story attached to it because According to current biological theory, the whale is not a fish, contrary to its appearance, but a mammal. It's a sea-going mammal that has made an incredible adaptation to life in the open ocean. So much so that it's completely incapable of living on land. You remember those pathetic scenes of beached whales. They can't get back. That's quite sad, all on its own for other reasons. But the story is that uh, there are a series of intermediate steps going from a land-dwelling creature. Uh, on one podcast, I said some dumb cow munching grass mm-hmm. decided to become uh, a whale. Of course, every yeah. Darwinist on Earth said, it, it isn't a cow, come on, <laughs> as if that were the, the gravamen of the argument. It's something, something land-dwelling. But here's the question. If you were to take a Chevrolet Corvette built in 1954, decide you want to make a Nautilus-class submarine out of the thing, give it to a lot of engineers and say, fellas, go do this. Do it for me. I think it could be done, but we all have a sense of the engineering complexities to do it would be a big, big, big project. 
The question I'd like to ask a Darwinist is, give me a quantitative estimate. How many steps would be required to change that Chevrolet Corvette built in 1954 into a Nautilus-class submarine? I don't want you to give me a quantitatively precise answer, but I want you to give me a ballpark estimate. Say it's off by an order of magnitude one way or another. And I think if we were talking about Chevrolet Corvettes and Nautilus-class submarines, the answer would ballpark be 50,000 changes, 60,000 changes, maybe 100,000 changes, if it's feasible at all. I kind of suspect it could be done. Now, I want the same answer for the transition from a land-dwelling creature to a sea-dwelling creature. How many changes were needed? Mm. Now, why would I be interested in that number? Let's, let's call that number the X number. And this is the point that the Darwinian community never finds curious. If we knew that number, which is an accessible number, we know enough biology to grasp that number, we could compare it to the fossil record. The fossil record has about 10 intermediate fossils between a land-dwelling creature and an ocean-going whale. If there are 10, let's say the tides of time have buried another 100, it's perfectly plausible. But if there are 50,000 required changes, there should also be 50,000 intermediates according to standard Darwinian doctrine. If there is an inequality, a strong inequality between those numbers, the number of fossils that we have observed, padded with the number of fossils we might have observed were it not for the injuries of time, and the number of changes, morphological, cellular, biological, physiological, anatomical, that are required to make that transition, then we could assess the plausibility of what is one of the most interesting Darwinian sequences in the record. That's never done. Mm. That is just never done. No. Darwinian paleontologist has ever said, we expect there to be 50,000 sequences in the whale transition sequence because we've computed the number of changes that are required. But wouldn't you think, Darwinian fellow seekers, that that's an obvious first step to take in making your scientific claims quantitative, not rigorously quantitative, but ballpark quantitative? Mm. It's not done. Mm. The closest that anyone has come to this sort of approach uh, was a German biologist, very fine German biologist, writing in the 1950s, Willy Hennig. He introduced cladistics and uh, a certain statistical methodology, and he was very concerned with quantitative measurements, but that doesn't touch on the question I'm raising. If there would be one question I'd like to pose to a serious, open-minded Darwinian biologist, it would be this. How come you guys never go to the next step which is a quantitative assessment of your claim. How come you're always showing us nice pictures, one, one creature developing into the next, and all sorts of arrows connecting them, uh -huh. which of course prompts the question, where did you guys find the arrows? Uh, <laughs> you found the fossils, but where, where did you find the arrows? That's the kind of question I'd like to ask. And there are dozens of other questions along the same lines. What do you think that someone would say? Let's say we had a, a thoughtful, honest Darwinist with us. What would he say in response to your challenge, do you think? I, I didn't mean it as a challenge. I mean, or his question. Open question. His question. What would he say in response? I think he's, he would say that uh, you, David, talking to me, David yeah. Berlinski, uh, have a tendency grossly to overestimate the number of changes. Yeah. When all is said and done, we'll discover that in going from that 
proverbial cow munching grass yeah. to a whale in the open ocean, 10 or 20 changes masterfully controlled by 10 or 20 genetic switches are all that required. That is to say, I think the honest Owenian reply would be that the structure of the whale is already in the cow in terms of its potential to become mm. a seagoing creature, but not perhaps an air-going creature. That's and I think that's a reasonable answer. It's the okay. only conceivable answer, in my, in my opinion. Yeah. Uh, if we're doing one change after the other by a random, random variation, random mutations, I think the process is hopelessly slow. Rick Sternberg has an interesting article about that. The window of opportunity is only about nine million years. Yeah. But that, of course, pushes the, the problem one step back. How come the creature is set up to become a seagoing creature if it spent all of its evolutionary history on the land? Where'd that come from? Yeah, oh, that's right. Michael, what, do you do you have a, a, yeah, well, a, a I singer think, for I, I think I would, yes. I mean, the one that I've often used and is, could you give it an adaptive description, you know, account of the insect body plan? Oh, it's, we're talking about something very yes. important here. Yes, yeah. They can't give it. Because mm -hmm. the, the fact is that in the history of biology, from Goethe all the way to Darwin, and Darwin himself accepts in the origin that he can't imagine what the you know, selective value was of these particular plans, right? right? He says they must have just had some function in the past. But that's, yeah. that's handling that, that's yeah. just nonsense. <laughs> you have an insect body plan, and of course there's thousands of body plans like this, which are numerical. We said about the legs earlier, right? You cannot explain it in terms of little functional steps. That's the body plan of the insects, right? Upon which puts all insects on the planet are based. You cannot give an explanation of it. And I have said that in debates a long time ago at King's. I debated Barry Cox, the biology editor of Nature, and he was dumb with silence. Mm. To stand there as Darwin would have had before Richard Owen, and he couldn't give an explanation for it, right? Mm. So that's what I would ask. That's, what, that's one question. That's okay. and, and I would pursue the line into the. I would say, okay. Let's take something simpler. Let's take the shape of an oak leaf. Can you give a Darwinian explanation for that? No. An ash leaf? No. The fact that one tropical leaf is this big, and mind you, these are recurrent forms, which are absolutely robustly recurrent through time. So you've got a huge problem now because you've got a mass. I mean, in, in the botanical world, this is Marco Schutzenberger's point, of course. You remember. <laughs> we, we should interrupt. Both Mike and I were yeah. close friends of uh, Marco Schutzenberger, uh -huh. Berger, yeah. uh, who was a French mathematician. And yeah. We were very close, the three of us. Okay. Yeah, and he, well, I remember, in fact, I, I got onto the whole typological structural thing because of. Um, meeting him in his room in Paris, as yeah. we both did, actually. And of course, he took me to a garden, a botanical garden in Paris, and in the, he, he, had a, he had a chest problem. He was always panting and puffing, but he would say, Mike, look at all these patterns in the, in the garden. Thou never explained any of this stuff. <laughs> <laughs> it's absolutely true. There is so much that seems repetitive structure, but adventitious. In, in botany, certainly, but in biology generally, that the forms, no matter where you, you look, the forms do not seem adaptive in any obvious sense. 
nor do they seem singular or unique so that one could say it has to be this form because there is no other. Any form you point to in nature, like the oak leaf, the example that Mike Denton just gave, you can say, well, I can think off the top of my head of 200 different kinds of shapes to assign to an oak leaf. Why was this one chosen? Right, right. And yet, if you say, well, that's just the way nature works, there's a certain level of chance, indeterminacy, you know, I've got to choose some shape for a leaf, so it was the oak. But then you miss the fact that these forms are very similar, that there's a coordination between forms, that they seem to be mathematical descriptions so that you can pass from one form to another, as Darcy Thompson noted. And that line of research has by no means been exhausted. The notion of structurally stable shapes persisting in nature that have an explanation that has nothing to do with adaptation. Nothing. Yeah, this yeah. is what you were saying. And, and, and I would also perhaps take the extremely simple example of the enucleation of a mammalian red cell. Right? I've already said that birds have a higher metabolic rate than mammals and get by with a nucleated cell. And you can't evolve gradually enucleation because it's, you either have the nucleus in the cell right. or you have it out. Right. And so basically, these are points I've also used in the past as well. Very, I mean, obviously nobody can explain how the enucleation of the cell occurred gradually, right? Yeah. It's impossible because it's a, it's a saltational event, right? And the other thing is that, in fact, there's other now, there's body plans emerging, like for instance, the turtle body plan. You will never find intermediates in the fossil record between turtles and other standard reptiles anymore because, in fact, the way that the turtle body plan emerged seems to have been saltational. This is evo-devo stuff, right? Yeah. So, yeah, there's a few things I, I can throw at them. I think there's definitely what David said, and also the, the question of the type. I think that these, these questions really can't be answered. This has been ID of the Future. Stay tuned for more with David Berlinski and Michael Denton. Thank you for listening. On this episode of ID the Future, David Klinghoffer interviews David Berlinski and Michael Denton as they discuss the debate over evolution. A longtime critic of neo-Darwinism, philosopher David Berlinski is the author of over a dozen books. Michael Denton has been a medical geneticist for more than 20 years. Dr. Berlinski and Dr. Denton are both senior fellows at Discovery Institute. On today's podcast, they discuss why Darwinism has persisted and what weaknesses threaten its existence in the 21st century. Why does Darwinism hang on? I mean, it's what is the source of its grip on our minds and on our culture? I don't know that it's really hanging on. Look, I think we have to be responsible in surveying the history of this debate. Darwin published in 1859, and there was a certain amount of enthusiasm when he published, because it seemed to be a radical solution to a number of problems. But from 1859 straight through to 2011, there's been a cesaurus, a steady cesaurus of opposition. So instead of asking, why does Darwin hang on, one might ask, why is the debate stable? Which is a different kind of question. Why has one side, neither one side nor the other, really gained traction in this debate? Mm. And they're complicated answers. I don't think they're scientific. Mm. I think there is in this country a tremendous fear that any form of criticism of Darwin has an underlying political agenda. 
and this goes right back to the 1920s in the Scopes trial, mm -hmm. and H.L. Macon's very successful description of uh, Darwinian opposition as being the prerogative of men who talk in tongues and handle snakes. Of course, the question Macon didn't ask, because he wasn't able to ask it, was, you know, they talked in tongues and handled snakes, but they were right. They were right in their objections to this scientific theory. And there is no reason that shouldn't be. Right. People can be very primitive in their religious expression and have a very shrewd appreciation, even shrewder than the professionals, about the weakness of a theory. You know, when these people from Georgia, say, or Mississippi, rising from the bowels of the earth to say, I ain't descended from no monkey, <laughs> Macon couldn't restrain himself. He said, yeah. you're not descended from yeah. a monkey, you are a monkey. <laughs> but the question we should ask, with a certain amount of humility, I think, because we're all intellectuals, we all are very vulnerable to the same temptation, temptation assuming we're just so smart we couldn't be wrong. The question we should ask is, is there a shrewd insight in that? This deep, instinctive unwillingness to say the human lineage goes back to simian ancestors. I'm not saying it doesn't. Please, please understand it. I'm not making a judgment right. about current doctrine of human ancestry, although I think the story is infinitely more complicated than the Smithsonian and the Museum of Natural History would acknowledge. But I'm saying perhaps there was a very shrewd insight in this stubborn unwillingness to credit a story with insufficient evidence. Hmm. And that pattern, I think, has persisted to the present day. There is a, a rhetorical stability now. There are three sides. The public, very skeptical by every, every estimate. The professional academy of Darwinian propagandists who spend all their time blogging about the glories of Darwinian yeah. theory and very little time doing anything else. And the critics. Right. And we've reached a three-way point of equilibrium. Very interesting. I don't see much give and take. Yeah. A little bit here, a little traction here, a little traction there. But somehow or other, all parties to the discussion recognize there's something going on that our own interpretation fails entirely to accommodate. Yeah. Nobody's willing to say that, but everyone feels it. We're in the presence of uh, scientific mysteries that make the scientific mysteries of the 17th century when physics was discovered seem almost trivial in comparison. This is a much more difficult problem than any Newton or Einstein ever faced. Much more difficult. Yeah. We cannot answer the first significant question about biology. What is a living system? How would you describe a portion of space and time so that it counts as a living system? We have no idea how to do that. What is a species? All we have is this laughable idea that a species is defined by its lack of reproductive uh, success. Once uh, you can no longer mate, uh, a species forms, a, a cohort divides, but that's strictly an operational, an operational definition of species is some sort of platonic entity. And uh, sexual satisfaction or not sexual satisfaction is an operational criterion. It has nothing to do with the essential identity of a species, which is located we don't know where. But plainly, there is such a thing as a species. And if there is not, we're faced with completely different kinds of considerations. That is, we're not in the presence of the Darwinian question, the origin of species, 
but we're in the presence of a continuous panorama of living systems that are fluidly exchanging parts with one another and are developing as one single organismic form on the face of the earth. That's a very different kind of consideration. Mm -hmm. If the second is true, Darwin is completely irrelevant. It's like asking why the appendix grows at a different rate than the nose. It's all part of the same thing. But my point is not that that's true or that's false, and we just don't know. Mm -hmm. We have no good way of describing a species. I, I think that the, the general public have grasped something of what David's saying. I mean, I think they've got this idea that living things are something really strange and wonderful, right? And the that's because they read us. <laughs> <laughs> and I think they intuit correctly that, in fact, there is no real answer to these questions, right? Darwinism is just a sort of a, it's window dressing. It doesn't really answer any questions, and the general public sort of have that intuition that, that that's the case, right? And the other thing is that I think the mainstream biology, what you've got is in the, in the States, I mean, you can name the people, there's just a key number of people who are defending Darwinism strenuously mm -hmm. in proceedings of the National Academy, in various papers. I mean, sure. people like Miller mm -hmm. or, you know, these people. But I'm not sure that they really represent actually mainstream biology. It's a strange thing. I've been working in genetics for the last 20 years. Darwinism was never discussed at conferences or anything. I mean, nobody ever even, never even comes into the discussion, you know? And, and I think that in fact, the, there's, there's a sort of high priesthood mm. watching for anti-Darwinists and watching yeah. for any sort of distortion of these ideas and, and, and the stamp, try to stamp on it, you see. People that, that you're talking about a, a band of sort of in Darwinist enforcers who, yeah, no, no, who intimidate right. the mainstream scientists in a bullying kind of a way. Well, I have done in the past. I just wonder what's going to happen over this next decade, though. Yeah, um, but I see what's happening is, is uh, from a sociological point of view, even more interesting. There is a lot of obstreperous bullying. You're quite right. And people are very reluctant to express their views in public, lest the other side be encouraged. But amongst themselves, when biologists talk amongst themselves, the story is completely different. And that is not really making it to the media. That discrepancy between what uh, biologists will say as part of their propaganda effort. I mean, they tithe. It's like tithing in mm -hmm. the church. 20% of what they say has to be mendacious in order to support the church. <laughs> but when they talk amongst themselves, or when you read what they say carefully, yeah. Then a whole different world emerges. You know, Kunin is a very good biologist, a Russian immigrant. He's just published a big book. Yeah, what is, what is this new book? Do you I haven't read it, yeah. but I've read his papers. Yeah. And he's just as frank as could possibly be. It's the head slapping the forehead. We don't know how life emerged, how it diversified. Everything's a mystery. We've got to go to the multi-world hypothesis of quantum cosmology about which he knows nothing. It's a frank admission that applying Darwinian principles to problems of this level of complexity is like putting a band-aid on a wound caused by an atomic weapon. Right. It's just not going to work. Right. And there are lots right. of others. Yeah. I, think, I, mean, of I, others. Yeah, I think one of the things that's going to happen in the next 20 years, though, particularly in cell biology, is that people are going to have to acknowledge that the, the reductionist mechanistic approach to the cell is going to fail. I mean, for instance, cell biologists, one of the great doyens of cell biology in America was a guy called Paul Weiss. And if you look at the history of cell biology, cell biologists have always been skeptical that cells are going to be reduced to molecular interactions. Mm. They've always been skeptical. Weiss is a great hero of mine, Paul Weiss, actually. Um, I've read everything he's ever written, right? Yeah. 
And um, he was very much of a top-down guy. He never believed that he'd ever explain the cell in terms of molecular biology and genes and things, right? Now, this is not directly connected with Darwinism in people's minds, but it is, of course, it is sort of part of the log same logical framework, the mechanistic sort of you know, reductionist framework. I think the signs that, in fact, the cell is where it's at. That, that's where biology is now focused now. That, that, that's the frontier, that's the watershed, the nature of the cell. Because higher, higher stuff is just still so complicated that it's, you know, it's just, but in the case of the cell, you can no longer get away from the idea that you should be able to explain cell form from genes and from below. But you can't do it, even in the case of a red cell. You've got to examine the bulk properties and the emergent properties of cells and things, which are very, very surprising. As I said to you just earlier about the fact that the, the red cell membrane studied, studied as, a, as a membrane is 200 times more elastic than latex and stronger than steel. And these are bulk properties, emergent bulk properties of a cell, which you need now to explain the form of the cell, right? And this is bringing in the laws of form, it's bringing in physics to explain organic form. And that doesn't work because once you start bringing in another set of causal factors, See, I mean, anybody can see that if you have to, ex you have to have emergence, like you know, the multiple, you know, hydrogen, oxygen, you get emerging features and this sort of thing. Everybody can see this can't be explained by Darwinism because Darwinism can can't go gradually to an emergent phenomenon like the properties of water compared with oxygen and hydrogen, right. and that's what I'm seeing at the cell, and that's going to create a huge bloody problem. This, I mean, I, I really can see it coming, and I mean, talking to friends and colleagues, everybody's now admitting. The cell form is like properties of water compared to hydrogen and oxygen. You have the proteinomes, you have the interactomes, you have everything there, but you can't see the higher form, right? And so this is going to present a huge challenge to the sort of conventional standard model of biology that's been accepted for the last century. There's a, there's that's, a, that's a correlative claim, correlative to what Mike just has said, you know, since 1971, the idea of Bricolage has been very current. Bricolage is putting things together, taking things from uh, marché, cobbling things together. And Francois Jacob wrote a book about biology. He said biology is the study of things that have been cobbled together adventitiously. Something here, something there, it works, it doesn't work very well, but we get by. The human appendix is there, it's just hanging around, longing for its lost days. The human spine is a masterpiece of maladaptation. <laughs> evolution hasn't thought to change it because after all we can shuffle along on our spine until we reach sexual maturity and after that we go to narcotics, everything is okay. <laughs> and that idea has been tremendously, tremendously powerful. The word bricolage has now yeah. entered the biological English language. Yeah. And from what I can gather, it's completely false. Completely false. And this, I just see emergence step by step. Every living creature is perfect as it is. It cannot be made better. Oddly enough, it comes from the most disparate of sources. Chomsky talks about the perfection of the human language organ. It is absolutely perfect, given that its requirement is to mediate between the conceptual structure of the human brain and the phonological structure of the larynx and the organs of speech. You cannot improve on the language organ. Nature has chosen a perfection in order that we should be able to express our thoughts as I am now expressing mine. 
that is a considerable difference from bricolage. Yeah. Physicists studying the eye, the human eye, far from being a kludge, far from being an example of bricolage, the human eye's threshold of detectability is on the order of a single photon. Yeah. Now that should send a shiver up your back. Mm. Here we are, the product of a messy, intemperate, adventitious, inaccurate, unguided evolutionary process, and sitting on top of our heads are two organs that are perfect. Now where'd that come from? Mm. Every evolutionary biologist with a propaganda microphone close to his vibrating throat will tell you, bricolage, bricolage, <laughs> think of the appendix, oh my aching back, oh go on Berlinski, don't tell me anything is perfect, and yet he is staring at the microphone with two eyes that are marvels. Yeah. Not only of engineering complexity, but of perfection against the measure of design. How much more perfect could they be? No more perfect. And this goes right through the animal kingdom. Every, every living thing seems to embody its own form of perfection. This has been ID the Future. Stay tuned for more with David Berlinski and Michael Denton. Thank you for listening. On this episode of ID the Future, David Klinghoffer continues his interview of mathematician David Berlinski and biochemist Michael Denton. They delve into the difficulties of Darwinian evolution as a viable modern theory of the origin and development of life in the cosmos. On this episode, Berlinski explains why many conservative intellectuals have trouble doubting Darwin. Denton suggests that the mechanistic Darwinian framework will eventually collapse and reviews the essential differences in worldview between the Darwin supporter and the Darwin doubter. Tune into the final episode of this stimulating exchange. David, you, you were, I, I, I've been watching your interviews with Peter Robinson on Uncommon Knowledge, uh, Uncommon Knowledge which I thought was great. And I was gratified to, um, and Robinson says very clearly he's on your side. Yes. And, and I thought it was very significant that, I mean, National Review is you know is running the you know is is running this series of interviews and and um, you know it's it's a pleasant surprise because often surprisingly on the right on the political right even though this issue has been politicized as you say conservative intellectuals are very frequently hostile to Darwin doubting. Oh, I know that. I've I've encountered that myself. I've had. Splendid interviews with conservative intellectuals in their offices, going through the arguments. I won't mention names; there's no reason to. Right. And they say, you know, Dave, those are those are great arguments. You should be making them. They said, X. I have been making them. I've been making them for 20 years. I made them at commentary until they kicked me out of commentary. Yeah. Oh, I didn't know that. Um, I wonder why that was. Yeah. Do you want me to tell you why uh, I haven't been very successful in gaining? Uh, an organ of publicity? No, no, that. And then, and then the light dawns in their pale blue eyes. Uh, the light is, is very easily explained. The conservative intellectuals take an immense pleasure in thinking of themselves as intellectuals. God forbid they should be associated with evangelicals who might pull a snake yeah. from a pocket. Yeah. <laughs> or might mumble something about biblical inerrancy. inerrancy. Right. Uh, there's a real... Um, fear of a decline in social status 
by finding oneself associated with one's natural enemies that is at work in the conservative community. Mm-hmm. It's at work in every aspect of the conservative community. They struggle so hard for respectability, these people, after William Buckley made conservatism yeah. essentially respectable, and they're terrified of losing that respectability. I mean, that's an element of Templeton as well. Yeah, it's an element of Templeton. It yeah. goes right through. Can you imagine one of these guys in New York? You know, they have the really good suit, but not the top suit, the <laughs> Paul Scott suit. And they've got the tie that doesn't quite go because they don't know enough to pull off that style. Yeah. And some grizzled farmer from Mississippi emerges on 34th Street in midtown Manhattan and puts a manure-reeking hand over their shoulder and says, Irving, we're on the same boat. <laughs> That's a terrifying thought. <laughs> I wonder if they also um, don't grasp or haven't really thought about why this issue matters, why it should matter to them and to their readers and to their constituency. Some have, you know, when I wrote for commentary, Neil Cossett, I understood that perfectly well. You understood why it matters. Yes, but uh, the real power, John Podoritz, who founded his power was merited, condign, he didn't think it mattered. So how would you explain we won't, we won't we won't go into personalities, but but to a conservative intellectual who doesn't get why it matters, who, who would say, you know, you know, David, um, you're right, I agree with you, but you know, this just is not not our issue. And let's let's say that he's not motivated by social anxiety. Let's say he just let's give him the benefit of the doubt. He just mm-hmm. doesn't see why it's an issue. Why are we talking about this? How would you explain why does this matter? I don't know whether I could explain why it matters any more than I could explain why it matters that we have uh, a theory explaining the origin of the universe or the development of the galaxies, or that there are conceptual weaknesses in physical theories that should be addressed. I mean, you you both encountered the same thing. Uh, Mozart, yeah, it kind of tinkles in the background, but I can't, it doesn't really matter to me, Mozart, the music of Bach, uh, booms. I prefer not to listen to that. And with respect to what I think are the great, riveting, powerful questions of our age, there are people who say, eh, tant pis, it's not very interesting. Or they will say, as has often been said to me, how does this affect the Jews? Mm-hmm. How does it affect Israel? Give me the connection. Yeah. <laughs> I'm going to say, well, it doesn't affect the Jews, it affects any thinking human being. Well, lots of things affect thinking human beings, but we can't cover everything. Yeah. And I'm afraid at that point there's very little I can do. If someone is not intrinsically attracted by these ideas, who doesn't find his soul to a certain extent on fire at the stupendous stupendousness how do you give me that stupendousness, stupendousness of yeah. what he's being asked to contemplate. Yeah. Uh, what can you say? I, I know people who look at general relativity. Good mathematician. Just another field. Why should I pay attention to that? And uh, Einstein kind of doctored it up with a lot of fancy doodads. And look, this is essentially the view of Steven Weinberg. Einstein introduced another field, the gravitational field. I mean, you know, there's a division in physics between those who worship the shrine of general relativity and those who don't. Mm-hmm. And those who worship at the shrine cannot understand why the other physicists are not transfixed by the beauty of those equations. That equation, the field equation. 
So there's very little we can say or do. And, and believe me, I've been in New York, I've been in Washington, I've talked to a lot of guys. Every now and then you get a convert, like Ann Coulter. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Ann Coulter's been remarkably successful, you know, in a yeah. way that we can't be. Yeah. Um, she's just published two columns, really bashing Darwin yeah. at the yeah. New York Times. Yeah. And, uh, so do you, have you found that, David, over the last 20 years with your activities, um, have you made, I mean, you, you mentioned one convert, right? I mean, have you, have you, have you, how many people do you think you've influenced? I mean, from feedback you've got all... I've got, um, I think anybody who writes, who publishes, develops, unless they're just wretched, nobody wants to read them. Uh, a kind of fan club, and like uh, like every other writer who writes on scientific topics or mathematical topics, I have a fan club. People who say, "Well, until I heard you, until I heard you speak, until blah blah blah," and after that, the scales fell fell from my eyes. Um, I think there's a certain amount of change that's taking place, but real change always takes place in the generation that's coming up, not the generation that's passing on. I could have Richard Dawkins in a room for a century without being able to change his mind. Uh, well, the first 99 years, he would be un unwilling to speak to me, that's for sure. <laughs> but starve for company, he would break down in the 99th year. Yeah. But the only thing he would say is, you're wrong. Yeah. Uh, I always sign Richard Dawkins in New York accents. It's a courtesy. Yeah. <laughs> um, I mean, I, I think that the Darwinian sort of framework will we were talking about this earlier, I mean, it'll collapse with the general framework of, you know, the sort of mechanistic sort of reductionist yeah. framework. That's going to collapse, I think. That is going to go. So the, the something's going to give eventually. The question that I keep asking myself is the whole uh, framework of Western science going to collapse? Um, That's a deeper question. Uh, yeah. Yeah. For some reason, nobody at the Discovery Institute is too eager to ask the head question. Oh, yeah. <laughs> please, please go on. Yeah. <laughs> really a dramatic example of repairing the lifeboat at sea, yeah. <laughs> if we make that thesis. But it is a question, you know. No system of thought lasts forever. We're talking about a system of thought that begins end of the 16th century with Kepler and Copernicus taking very daring steps about what they were thinking. Everything in modern science is right there in Kepler. Kepler is asking questions that are obviously modern scientific. Why is the distance between the planets the, what it is? It's a question that occurs in biology. Why don't pigs have wheels? Mm -hmm. And he's proposing answers. They're wrong, but he's proposing answers mm -hmm. in terms of the platonic solids. When you get to Galileo and Newton, you have essentially modern science. All the parts of the revolution occur within a period of 10 years. Mm -hmm. Astonishing. Mm -hmm. The most profound revolution in human thought takes place in 10 years. By the time Newton publishes in the Principia, 1685, 1686, the greatest work in the scientific imagination had already been written. Mm -hmm. Nothing ever comes close to that again. Nothing. Mm -hmm. But how long can that last? I mean, we, we, can, we can say exactly what Newton did, how he made the revolution. He applied mathematics to physics. That's the revolution. That's interesting. No biologist does that. Mm. There is no mathematics in biology. Yeah. Why is that? It's funny as well, in fact, David, looking back on the scientific revolution, it was very much a revolution in physics. Yeah. And from the very beginning, biology was excluded in a sense. That's right. Mm -hmm. Aristotle, of course, made the universe biological and physics had to bend to biology. 
whereas since the 17th century, biologists had to bend to physics. I mean, it's a generalization. I think that's absolutely right. Yeah. And, um, for instance, Descartes had to exclude the mind, you see, and agency from his, you know, for, yeah, he said, this is ever phenomenal. And, uh, I can't handle this mechanically. I can't handle this in terms of the new physics, so we'll ignore it. I mean, that is one of the biggest extraordinary, you know, ad hoc moves in history, actually, to do that. In other words, what he was doing was he was excluding biology, really, from science. Hmm. Because you can't exclude mind, agency, you know, this sort of stuff. I mean, it's the essence of it. Yeah, yeah but anyway. It's yeah. not as if what Mike is saying has not ever been said before. You know, uh, Alfred Wallace was commonly credited with co-discovering Darwin's theory right. of evolution. And he did. It's true. He entered a number of very, very serious reservations about this theory that he had helped create. And in particular, he said it does nothing to explain the paradox of language, the paradox of music, the paradox of mathematics, the paradox of dance, artistic tradition, scientific interpretation. These are all waiting to be explained. They can't be explained by a Darwinian mechanism. Hmm. There's no accretion involved in any of this. You're sitting on the African plains, David. Yeah. Would you rather <laughs> contemplate a beautiful sunset or be able to run as fast as Usain Bolt? <laughs> <laughs> Absolutely. Absolutely. <laughs> you see, yeah. see there, there are... The history is not properly presented. I mean, there have been substantial criticisms all along the way, and I count Wallace as an immensely important critique. I, I've, I've sometimes daydreamed about having... A, a Darwin critic and a Darwinist in the same room and, ha and having not a debate but a very focused argumentative conversation between the two of them and you, you mentioned being in a room with Dawkins uh, not, not someone like Dawkins but someone who's, who's honest and, and not a propagandist and not a bomb thrower and, and if we made you sit in the room until you got down to the nub of the issue that divides you from him. What, what would it be? It's so hard to say, David. I suspect that when you ask a question like that, you are exhibiting a, a desire for acceptance completely at odds with the reality of the situation. Uh, it's very hard to imagine that kind of discussion actually proceeding toward the nub. Uh, I see it much more realistically fracturing into a thousand divigations and small points of petty dispute without any sense of resolution. Mm -hmm. You know, it's very hard for us to accept that uh, rational debate, rational discussion, rational mm -hmm. criticism, these are very weak instruments. They don't do much. But I, yeah, if, I mean, I, what I would say would yeah. be, in fact, basically the Darwinist accepts you know, a different, quite different ontological status of biological systems to myself. And this is a deep problem, right? He, he accepts the idea a priori that biological systems are essentially machine-like contingent arrangements of elements, right? I deny that, and I ask him to prove it. And I've also used that in debates as well, and it's a very powerful point. Because you see, the thing is that the Darwinian view depends on the a priori presumption of a contingent order, mm -hmm. you see. And once you ask him, it, this is, goes what back to typology again. Yeah. Well, what, what I mean is that the they're, they're assuming from the very beginning that Darwinism is right. Yeah. by their framework, their ontological framework, is that living things are contingent, you know, non-natural yeah, non arrangements of elements. That's what they're fun. Once you say, is that right? Wow. What are you going to do now, you see? Mm. 
And it's obvious when you think of the, 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 the extraordinary nature of existence itself. That's a huge assumption about biological systems, right? And you can bring this out in debate, actually. That the, and so that therefore, the difference I have with the Darwinist is I don't accept his premise that the ontological status of living things is, are, are a random, you know, non-natural assemblages of matter. That's his assumption. If he, if, he, if, he, if he questions that assumption, he can't have Darwinism. Because yeah. Darwinism is a sort of subsidiary theory on that fundamental conception of what the ontological status of living things is. Yeah. Is it almost as though the top-down folks are talking right by the, the bottom-up folks? Is that a fair... Well, it's like you, can't, you, you yeah. can't show who's right, Aristotle or, or, or Descartes. You see, I mean, the point is that you can't... You, that decision can't... You, he's decided that Descartes is right. Uh, he's decided... He's, be, he's bent biology to physics, right? Then everyone talks past everyone else. Yeah. In the moment of coincidence, the moment of concord, these are really rare, and they don't—they don't arise because people agree to sit down in a room and have an honest discussion. Um, Newton prevailed the moment Principia Mathematica was published because it simply stomped over everything. It was huge. It was like a mastodon in intellectual life. And no one could stand up against it. No one had the mathematical power, the mathematical power to utter the slightest word of criticism. And when somebody, when some poor schnook said something or other, Newton gave a magnificent response. He says, I don't trifle with mathematical smatterers. Really? <laughs> yeah. Really? <laughs> wonderful, yeah. Mathematical smatterers. But then when one, well after... Principia had been published, one of the Bernoulli brothers posed a problem about the line of least descent, uh, and none of the mathematicians in Europe could solve it. Newton was working at the Mint. He came home after dinner, dead tired, beat. His uh, niece gave it to him, and by 10 o'clock he had solved it, sent mm. it off anonymously, mm. and the response from Bernoulli was, this is Newton. He hadn't signed it. How do you know? I recognize the lion by its paw. This has been ID the Future with David Berlinski and Michael Denton. Thanks for listening. This program was recorded by Discovery Institute Center for Science and Culture. ID the Future is copyright Discovery Institute 2015. For more information, visit www.intelligentdesign.org or www.idthefuture.com.